Please take your copy of God's Word this evening and turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, and we'll be considering together verses 16 and 17, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. What a remarkable scene this passage depicts and conveys to us. Here is one born Saul of Tarsus, a devout Jew after the strictest sort, raised as a Pharisee. He drank in the law of God with his mother's milk. And he was adorned with gifts, gifts which were noticed, which attracted attention so that he was given privileges. And he ended up studying at the feet of Gamaliel, the most accomplished scholar of his countrymen and of that, that age. And he applied all of that with great zeal uh, to contending for what he believed uh, he had been taught. And so he was a, first per a fierce persecutor of Christ's people and the church of the Lord Jesus. But he is also gloriously converted by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the vision given to him of the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ and everything changed so that now the Old Testament, much of which he undoubtedly had memorized, opened up to him in ways that never had before. And he began to see the truth as it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, of course, is raised up by the Lord to be the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles. Few, if any, preachers ever like him. Uh, few, if, if any, more sacrificial in their sufferings. Few, if any, more diligent in his labors at planting churches all over Western Asia and, and Europe. Here is the Apostle Paul. And we find him in this text standing in the epicenter of human achievement in the ancient world. The Apostle Paul at the center of Athens. Remarkable scene in so many respects. Because he stood in Athens like few before him ever had. You replace the Apostle Paul with countless other men who had come to this place like he had. And all of the ooing and aahing, and all of the wows, and all of the uh, excitement and exhilaration about the sights to be seen, and the things to be taken in in Athens. And how very different from what is described here in the Apostle Paul. And yet, this is a historic incident, and yet there is something remarkably timeless about it. Something remarkably timeless. Because the Apostle Paul, standing, as I say, in the epicenter of human achievement in the ancient world, in the center of Athens, represents Christians throughout all the ages who have, like him, 
stood in the midst of their own society and in their own circumstances, being in a place and yet not of the place, uh, being in, raised in and living in a certain part of the world and yet completely disentangled from that world. He represents in many ways the Lord's people throughout the ages before him and, and since then. And so we turn this evening to the opening, really, of a very famous section of Acts, Acts 17, and considering just these initial two verses. So much of the passage is given a great deal of consideration in literature, Christian literature. We're focusing on these first two verses. We're going to note three things. Uh, first of all, seeing the need. So first of all, seeing the need. We're told that Paul waited for them at Athens. And while waiting, he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. So he's, tra he's traveled something like, I don't know, 200 miles from Berea down along that eastern coastline uh, to Athens. And here he is himself in a remarkably accomplished scholar, scholar of the highest order. And here he is so unlike everyone else around him. Indeed, if we took many of our contemporaries, even within the church, how incredibly unlike uh, they would be, who would go and have be full of all sorts of questions, right? We have all of this ancient literature, the pieces of literature that have come down from this era, and many would have thought, well, here's the opportunity to ask a zillion questions to all of these philosophers and others, to ask them about their ancient beliefs and so on, or having taken in all of the achievements and accomplishments, some of which we'll hear of in a minute, at the time, right? Athens, after all, think of it, it's renowned for remarkable statesmen whose names are still familiar to us, right? It's remarkable for having housed some of the greatest philosophers and philosophical minds the world's ever known. It's known for its accomplished historians, for its poets, for its painters, for its architects, right? truly remarkable. It would have been at the time the most educated place on the globe. No place would have been more educated. Right? This is, after all, the streets that Socrates had, had, had walked and Plato had taught there and Euripides and you had some of the greatest speeches in terms of human rhetoric. Demosthenes and others who had spoken there. And you think of all that, 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 the, that there was, even the remnants of what we can both read about and see in the ruins there, right? The art and the uh, remarkable, magnificent accomplishments with regards to art. Or you think of the buildings, uh, the, the engineering aspect, but also the aesthetic aspect, the architecture that was represented there, it was awe-inspiring. It would take the breath away of many, the harbor with all that it contained. And as I said at the time, as the text tells us here, you had Epicureans and you had Stoics who were coming to interface with the Apostle Paul, but there were Pythagoreans as well and Platonists and Sophists and all sorts of other schools that were alive and well at, at the time. You had lots of money. You had significant uh, government that took place. You had all of the culinary aspects of their society and so on. 
And for many today, that is what would occupy the thoughts, the eyes, the mind, right? Taking in all these sights and actually being taken in by all of these sights, right? Dazzled by them. But here's the Apostle Paul, and the Bible tells us what the Apostle Paul's reaction was. What did the Apostle Paul see? He could see the architecture. He could see all of the other things, that the out outward accomplishments that were there. What did he see? He saw in a word, vanity. He saw vanity. That's how he describes it in Colossians 2. Verse 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. He saw vanity. He saw a need, didn't he? He saw that there were those who needed to turn from worshiping dumb idols uh, to, to be brought out from under the deception and domination of the devil and devil worship, to be brought to serve the living and the true God. We're told that, the, that he saw the city full of idols. And it's true because the ancient records tell us that there were more idols in Athens than the whole rest of Greece combined. That Athens had twice as many pagan feasts as anywhere else in the region, right? This was a place absolutely addicted to idolatry, the worship of demons. And even, even after Athens was Christianized, if you will, even after, you know, 300 years after the Apostle Paul and for many, 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 many years uh, beyond that, they had the hardest time eradicating idolatry from Athens. Christian emperors and others could hardly make a dent in it. It wasn't until the pagans, the Goths, came in and wreaked havoc and destroyed things that the place was cleaned up after a manner of speaking. These are people, though, that profess to be wise, right? These aren't cavemen. These are, these are people that professed to be wise and yet had become fools, you think of Romans chapter 1, verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, to, beer, to birds, and, and so forth. And so the Apostle Paul saw a need. He saw what no one else was seeing. Yes, his, his, his eyes could obviously behold the things in the streets and the buildings and the, all of the, the people and the fanfare that went with it, but he saw what others couldn't see. He saw a people without revelation, a people without a Bible, a people without the Word of God. And being without the Bible had left them debased, had left them absolutely corrupt. Because all of their natural gifts and all of the light of nature and all of the other things that they could achieve were not sufficient. They were not enough. I mean, I said that this is the most educated place on the planet at the time. But we learn, don't we? Education does not eliminate darkness. It doesn't. I mean, we're in the same soup at the present hour. 
where people have been deluded into thinking that education will eliminate darkness and with it you know, hardship and all of the consequences of sin and so on and so forth. Education that's not sanctified, education that is not God-centered, education that is not accompanied by, by the word of God only compounds the darkness. They had the canons of logic and ethics and rhetoric and history. They had remarkable mental discipline, which they applied with great zeal, and yet they were without God. And the Apostle Paul saw it. They are without God. All of these philosophers, right? Philosophy is the love of wisdom. All of these alleged wise men, and yet not one of them could answer the most basic question, what must I do to be saved? Not one of them could answer it. Where is your wisdom now? How deep is this wisdom? Is it not folly? All of their science and the, 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 the remarkable advances with science along with, with art, and yet it left them in the stupor of superstition. That's how Paul describes it in verse 22. He stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Advance in science, advance in art, whatever else, technology had led them to nothing more than superstition. And all the architecture and sculpture and anything else couldn't deliver them from that. The point is that Paul had eyes to see. He could see clearly. He could see accurately. He was given eyes illuminated and enlightened by the Holy Spirit to see what natural man could never see. And as a consequence, it made all the difference. I said that there's something timeless about the Apostle Paul's stance here, and it's true, isn't it? We live ourselves in a skeptical, unbelieving age. Christendom, what was known of Christendom has deteriorated. Right? The West is slipping away from whatever the West was. And we, we're left with a claim of intellectual prowess, which is primarily manifested in technological advance, little else, truth be told. And yet it is reason without the Bible. And it is therefore folly. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how advanced a society becomes outwardly. It doesn't matter how, how great the attainments are if they are left with worshiping idols. And at the end of the day, we live in an era and in a place in the West of abundant idolatry. Not the same forms that were found in Athens, but they're the same in substance. Superstition. The fact is that you could be not in Athens, you could be in the United States. You could be standing in Washington, New York City. You could be in London, Brussels, Amsterdam, Paris, Prague, Moscow. The scenes all very different. 
very different from Athens, very different from each other, but in substance, the same. Because though the human eye would see in buildings and architecture and all of the outward uh, attainments, stark differences perhaps in design and theme and so on and so forth, the believer would see through all of that to the heart of the same thing. Places full of idols. Places in their wisdom that have been reduced to superstition. And so the challenge for us in reading verse 16 initially, the challenge for us as the Lord's people is to open our eyes to see. Is to be able to see spiritually. The challenge is to be able to see biblically, to see with spiritual eyes, to not be prevented in seeing with our human eyes, the eyes, the anatomical eyes inside of our heads, right? If that's all that we're focused on, then that's, we're never going to be able to see below the surface. We're always going to be taken up with what the eyes can behold, whatever new advance is taking place, whatever technological development is happening, whatever other thing, you know, in terms of human achievement that's, that's being secured, that's what we'll see. That's what we'll think about. That's what we'll understand. But if that's all that we are occupied with, we'll never see truly. To be able to see spiritually the state and condition of a nation, a people, a community, an era, and so it's a call for us to open our eyes. While Paul waited for them at Athens, he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Secondly, burdened by the need. So we begin by seeing the need. Secondly, burdened by the need. Verse 16, now when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. So here we have his internal response. His spirit was stirred in him. He saw Athens for what it was, not for what it claimed to be. He saw it for what it was, not for what it pretended to be. He saw it for what it was, and he was affected by it. He wasn't untouched by it. It wasn't just a mental note. This is very different than what the scriptures teach us, or this is very different from what God has, has called us to. It wasn't just a, an intellectual assessment, an observation. He is affected by it. He's filled with what? He's filled with concern for the glory of God, and he's concerned, he's filled with compassion for the priceless souls of men. These two things occupy him. They, have, they stir his heart. Concern for the glory of God and compassion for souls. As I said earlier, how remarkably different the Apostle Paul in the middle of Athens, when contrasted with so many others placed in the exact same spot, outwardly seeing all the same things, but radically different feelings about what they see. Radically different feelings. His spirit is stirred within him. Why? Because, as I said, he saw more, and he saw more because he saw through and he saw above the things that were presented to him. He saw chiefly one thing, 
the spiritual condition of souls. These people are idolaters. These people are entirely given over to superstition. The Apostle Paul is always, if you will, about his father's business, like his Lord. Right? He's traveled from Berea. He's had all sorts of terrible problems in Thessalonica. He's been chased out of Berea. He's been brought by his friends to Athens. He has a little downtime. And what is he doing? He's thinking, feeling, acting, speaking in terms of his father's business. He's like Moses in that way. Right? Moses looked at the, 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 the heights of, of human achievement in his own day, right? I mean, he's at the top of the food chain. He's, he's in Egypt. He's in Pharaoh's house. He's got remarkable stuff, and there really is remarkable things there. We'll hear some about them in Isaiah. This Lord's day, if God spares us. But Moses looked at all of that, and he said no. He saw through it. He saw it for what it was. He chose to align himself with the people of God and to suffer with them rather than all the treasures of Egypt. He's like Elijah. He's like the, pro the other prophets that went before him. He saw this place as a city of evil. And so his heart is, his spirit is stirred within him with compassion. Right? He, remember the Lord, our Lord in the Gospels repeatedly, I think it's nine times in the, in the four Gospels, Jesus looked upon the multitudes with compassion. He didn't just see him as those who needed bread or who needed to be physically healed or who needed to be delivered from demon possession. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as, as perishing souls, perishing for lack of knowledge. And so here is Paul amidst standing in the center of all of the intelligentsia of his day. Standing among the brightest and most accomplished intellectuals of his day. And he says they're perishing. For what? Lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. You're talking to super educated people. But they're perishing from lack of knowledge. He has compassion for them. He's not, um, he's not full of bluster. Right? He's, he's not condescending. Uh, he, he has genuine concern for them. He's filled with sorrow, if anything. Right? He's got sorrow for all of the, the circumstances in which these people find themselves and you know, where they're headed and all the delusion and the layers of entanglement in their idolatry and in their false philosophies and so on. No doubt, he's also moved and stirred with a measure of indignation chiefly at the God of this world who blinded their minds to the knowledge of the truth. Indignation against the one who lies behind all of this, Satan. He stirred within him with a holy zeal. And that zeal becomes manifest in what he, he does. You remember the language given to us in describing Lot, not from Genesis, but from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, Lot, we're told, For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Or you think of the words of 
of David in Psalm 119. We sang a portion this evening relevant to what we're hearing in the sermon, but if you go back to verse 136, rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. And so there is a burden, right? Not just seeing the need, but being burdened by the need. Now, any one of us could stand in New York City, right at the heart of Manhattan, or in L.A., or in Chicago, along the, along the lake, or in Miami, or wherever else. And it's no different, right? What we see and the, the corresponding burden should be there. The corresponding burden. But we don't, we don't have to just look at our own country. I mean, look at foreign lands. You know, think of Mexico. Think of Sri Lanka. Think of, you know, far-flung places, China and beyond. Right? In any of these places, it would be the same as well. The question is, what do we see? And what do we think? And what exactly do we feel in response to what we see and think? And what do we say? about all of those things. What is our response to the world's fanfare? Is it to be taken in by it? Or is it to stand outside it, to see through it, and to be burdened by the need that it, that it reflects? Because right? on one hand, we have, in terms of application, the danger of drinking in the atmosphere. I mean, for Paul, there's few places more dangerous than Athens in that respect. Not in terms of physically, not as dangerous perhaps as Thessalonica was, but dangerous in terms of drinking in the atmosphere, being duped by it, being taken in by it. The believer is not of this world. The believer does not think according to this world. The believer is saturated in the word of God so that we're thinking his thoughts after him. That we are seeing things as he has called us to see them through the light that he has given to our minds and through the truth that he has placed in our laps. So that the believer does not fall prey, right? Holding fast to the, the form of, of, of stone words. So there's a warning about the danger. There is too, isn't there, a sense of, of genuine gratitude. There ought to be. There ought to be a sense of genuine gratitude for the privileges given to us. No doubt Paul felt something of this, right? Paul's thinking to himself, wow, I could have been raised in Athens. I could have been a Pythagorean. You know, I was raised a Jew. I was given the law. I was taught the Old Testament scriptures. God came and redeemed me from my wickedness and gave me eyes to see the truth as it is in Jesus. And I was brought to a saving knowledge of God so that I can understand the Bible as, as I ought and so on, but how different it could have been for him. For us, it's the same. There should be a sense not of superiority, not a sense of you know, being condescending, not a sense of, of, uh, of, uh, of being full of ourselves, but rather a sense of humble gratitude. How is it that we weren't born in Mongolia or born in a Hindu home in the slums of you know, somewhere in India or whatever else. 
there should be a sense of thankfulness and gratitude that we have the word of God, that we're under the means of grace, that we are taught the truth as it is in Christ, that we have the gospel preached to us, that Christ crucified is set before us. We need a sense of gratitude because we could be wholly given to idols. We could be worshiping dumb idols rather than serving the living God, the living and true God here this evening. And that will fuel this burden that Paul has, this burden for the lost. Seeing people as souls, seeing people in their circumstances as full-blown idolaters, seeing even allegedly smart people as given over to superstition. Not in the sense that we're better than they, but in terms of the burden of genuine compassion for their perishing souls. The Apostle Paul could have, you know, taken in the sights. He could have sat down at an ancient cafe and he could have sipped his whatever they drank in Athens and put up his feet and waited for Timothy to come. But his heart wouldn't let him because he had a burden, a burden. And that burden needs to be manifest in us, right? There needs to be a burden at home. There needs to be a burden for this community, for the up country of South Carolina, for the city of Greenville and Taylor's and all the other towns that, that comprise this part of, of the state. There needs to be a burden, right? It's not just that there are liberal people and pagan people and you know, Roman Catholic people and unchurched people or whatever. We're talking about people who are under the dominion of the devil's darkness, who are inclined to worship idols and to give themselves to all sorts of crazy superstitions. We need to see it as such. There needs to be a burden for the people that live next door to you and on your street and the people, the colleagues that you work with and the people that you drive by and the people that you pass with your grocery store, with your cart in the grocery store and everywhere else. We need to see biblically. We need to see truly. And that sight needs to lead to a burden. So there's a burden at home, but there's also a burden abroad, isn't there? Right? The two go together. A burden for souls is souls, whether near or far. And so we have a burden for nations, right? There are nations who don't have as much access to the gospel as we do. Don't have the privileges we do. Establish churches like we do and all the other things that come with with what God has, has granted us, we should have a burden for these places. There are nations who are given the overwhelming majority, sometimes almost entirely, to false religions. Worshipping false gods is worshipping demons. And to see people worshipping demons should move us. To hear of it. right? A burden for the lost. And so there's, first of all, seeing the need. Secondly, there is being burdened by the need. And then thirdly, addressing the need. Verse 17. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Now, disputed is a good translation, but we would often... Um, we would often use the word dis disputed with a combative 
connotation. Right? There's a little bit of a combative connotation with our current use of that word. It's more like he, he discussed, he, 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 he conversed uh, in the synagogue with the Jews. He addressed them. He held discussions with them. It's more along those lines. We're told that he did so both in the synagogue and in the market, marketplace. You'll notice what he didn't do. He did not in a rage or in a heat of zeal. Vitzius says this, one of our reformed uh, writers from the 17th century says, notice Paul did not, you know, fly off in a heat of zeal and break into their temples and pull down all their images and demolish their altars and get in their priest's face, faces. That's not what he did. Right? He didn't run out into the streets crying, you're slaves of devils. All of that is true. But that's not what he did. And yet, that's kind of the popular motif in our own day and age. Right? People are a little more cowardly. They hide behind their, their computer to do it. But they, they do the same sort of thing, right? where they go out and, and, and do this lamb-blasting thing uh, in an effort to... Uh, to, to win arguments and so on and so forth. And there's a place, obviously, to shut mouths of fools and to, and to harness good argumentation in, con in confronting error. <clears throat> but so different from what we see <clears throat> in the current climate. You'll note that he, um, <clears throat> he didn't do nothing. He didn't just feel burdened. He acted upon it. He goes to the Jews first, right? I mean, here, here are those who aren't idolaters in the way that the Greeks are, the Athenians are. <clears throat> They're not. They have Old Testament scriptures and, and so on and so forth. But they're enemies of, of Christ. They may be free from some of these outward forms of, of idolatry, but he goes to them. And he reasons with them regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. So he goes to those who had some points of contact in terms of religious discourse and so on. But he doesn't stop there. He goes to the market as well, right? This would have been the place of commerce, right? This is, this is where you know, people did their exchange, financial exchange and, and uh, shopping and whatever else. He goes into the place of commerce. You think about it. He's a Jew. He's unhindered by the fact that he's absolutely foreign. He's foreign to them. He's not from there or like them or anything else. He's very much out of place. And yet Paul is not moved by the thought of acceptance. He doesn't stumble over the sense of his own image on how he will be perceived. He's taken out of all of that because of this burden. His spirit is stirred within him. And because his spirit is stirred within him, it, it liberates him because he has one indomitable concern, and that is perishing souls. And he's going to do what's needed in order to bring the light and truth to them. And so what do we discover? True wisdom appears in Athens, accompanied by true boldness. Here is a light 
in the darkness. He is, he is conversing with the Jews, devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. In other words, the impression we're left with is that he will talk to anybody that will talk to him. That his desire is to engage whomever, however, and however many he possibly he can. And so he begins to bring light in an effort to dispel darkness. And he comes to them with one grand subject. He doesn't come with all of the, the esoteric details that they were interested in talking about. He doesn't come with the stuff that's on the fringe. He's not taking up whatever the hot topics that they say are. Right? He's not taking his cue from what they say is important and the hot topics that need to be addressed. He comes with a grand subject. He tells them about the nature of God. He tells them about the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells them about the judgment to come. He tells them about the resurrection. Kind of sounds like the Apostles' Creed, doesn't it? He's hitting them with the basics. He's hitting them with this grand subject. He is much in the main things, to quote one of our covenanting fathers. He is preaching to them Christ crucified. He's preaching the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's preaching the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's bringing to them gospel terms. He doesn't, he doesn't care. He knows something about what the Epicureans and the Stoics and the, and the Pythagoreans and Platonists and so on. He knows. He's not ignorant. He knows what they think and some of what they have, have taught. But he, he, he brings to them the gospel. He brings to them gospel uh, and the gospel terms, right? He's setting before them the overtures of the gospel, and he's calling them to repent. He's calling out the sin of their superstition, of their idolatry, of the perversity of their dark minds, and he calls them to liberty in Christ. He calls them to repent, to turn from their their debased thinking and philosophy and to turn from their wayward immorality and all of the, 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 the philosophical notions that they have and to turn to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't hide the things that he knows will offend them. He brings it straight to the front. He tells them of the resurrection, that, that Christ is the one who has been who has been resurrected from the dead. He knew that he would be laughed at, and he was laughed to scorn by some of them. Right? We're told later on that, they, that when he begins to speak to them about the, the resurrection, some mocked. Others said, we will hear thee again of this, of this matter. What is he doing? He's making a supernatural claim to those who only think in terms of what is natural. Natural gifts, natural ability, natural reason, natural achievements. And he breaks into their world with the Lord himself. A supernatural claim. Resurrection. This is miraculous. This is something that is humanly impossible that only God can do. And so he is addressing the need. He's coming to them with the message of, of Christ crucified. And he is venturing out in faith. 
irrespective of how he's perceived, irrespective of what they think, knowing that, that, that he's alien. Spiritually, he is, he is an alien to these people, completely foreign, sojourner. And so he ventures out in faith out of love for their souls. And in doing so, in casting the gospel net, it doesn't come back empty. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was, was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. What happened? What happened is that this faith and the power of God in the gospel triumphed over idolatry. The Lord triumphed over all of this idolatry. And the Lord has continued to triumph over it. Because you know what? All of the theology, the Pythagoreans and the Platonists and so on and so forth, their theology is as dead as a doornail. Fascinating to read about. Sure, there are remnants that reappear in other shapes and sizes and so on. By and large, dead as a doornail. And the gospel has gone on way beyond Athens and Rome and Spain, which Paul had in his sights, to encompass the world. The gospel is going forth and spreading light and delivering idolaters from the mischief of their, their depravity and bringing them into the liberty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the church, which started as 120 in the upper room at the time of our Lord's ascension. And... Look at where we are today and look at where all of these representatives in, in Athens are today. I mean, the people are obviously dead and gone, but everything they stood for is in ruins and everything they believed has been stuffed into books. That should encourage us, shouldn't it? that the burden that the Lord gives us for those in far-flung places on the foreign field and for those who are sitting under our noses in the neighborhood in the mill district behind us, that in both cases, that burden ought to lead to addressing the need, to holding forth with faith and wisdom and boldness the unsearchable riches of Christ crucified for needy sinners, and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. If, you know, the gospel is unpopular as it is in this pseudo-technological age and is dismissed as old-fashioned, so be it. Because it will break to smithereens all of the idolatry, all of the ideology, all of the philosophies, and all of the other religions that strut about on the world stage at the present hour the gospel will demolish them. We know it. And it should put, as it were, fire in our bellies and strength to our hearts to pray and to labor for the good of the advance of the kingdom in places like our own, our own equivalent of Athens in the, in the present hour. I said that there's something remarkable about these verses that stands out. The Apostle Paul in this epicenter, but I said there's something timeless about it. And it truly is timeless. We find ourselves at the present hour in precisely the same circumstances. 
And what we need is for God by the Spirit to give us, by His grace, the same response. To see clearly, to be burdened by the need, to be enabled to address the need as we ought. Let's stand together for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, the all-wise God, to whom be glory forever and ever, the one who is the fount of wisdom and of knowledge and who is given to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Word made flesh. And, O oh Lord, we pray, give that Christ crucified would be high and lifted up and that sinners, men and women, boys and girls, would be drawn unto him. Give us, O oh Lord, to see through the thin veneer of our own era and give us a heart that is burdened for perishing sinners. And give us grace that as we go forth sowing gospel seed, as we cast the gospel net, that indeed a harvest would be gathered to the glory of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name.